Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we have the one and only Rob Wolf on this show to unpack the sheer complexity of deciding what and how to feed the human population. Rob's a world-renowned nutrition and health expert known for his best-selling books, top-ranked podcasts, and many, many lectures. With his former career as a research biochemist, having a curious mind, a depth of complex problem-solving skills, and strong debating capability, Rob is wired to getting scientific and going deep on big macro issues. He does this with a direct approach and an ability to distill and synthesize complex information into easy to follow thought patterns and concepts. So in this episode, we take a run at discussing a complicated, thorny and ideologically charged topic, the globalist and technocratic propaganda around food production, food technology and dietary choices. This discussion cannot be condensed into a social media soundbite. It needs searching questions, deep, reflections, and a deep awareness of the multi-layered complex web of nutrition and ecology. The good news is Rob brings that deep awareness as well as a strong desire to find progressive, healthy solutions to both the individual, your local area, and the globe. We cover so, so much in this discussion. Rob speaks about his despair he feels at times in the discordance between honest science and what is being peddled regarding diets and food systems, how climate change and social justice ideas are quite frankly shutting down scientific and progressive debate, the issues in driving centralized systems of food production and distribution, asking whether the anti-meat and lab-grown global push is scalable, equitable, accessible or even healthy asking what would happen if we stopped all animal husbandry or monocrop agriculture today, and other big questions such as what does regenerative agriculture look like? Is searching for increased scalable means of producing food answering the right question? Why is it that humans feel they are no longer part of the circle of life? And is it morally right to consider genetically engineering humans to be intolerant to animal-based foods. And that is just half of it. We covered a hell of a lot in this discussion. As always, you can check out the full show notes by clicking the link within the description of this episode. And if this discussion resonates with you, please help others find our show by leaving a five-star rating or review in the podcast app of your choosing and tagging or sharing this Head Up Nation episode on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Lastly, if you want to take your personal growth to the next level, then do check out the Be Your Best Self-Optimization Journey, an online self-improvement program like no other, letting you into the human code and helping you realize your full potential and to be your best. You can find more details and podcast listener discounts within the episode notes. Okay, without further delay, let's get deep and meaningful on the matter of the globalist food agenda with the legend that is Rob Wolf. 
Nation. Wow. It's Rob Wolf on Adam Nation, Mike's. Welcome, my man. Huge honor. I will bring down property values anywhere that folks will let me do it. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you are so self-deprecating, very much so on your podcast as well. And I'm not quite sure why, but it is endearing. Um, I've been following you for a very long time, Rob, whether it be Why to Eat, your books, you know, the general discussion you had around CrossFit, um, your most recent work, co-authored, um, The Sacred Cow. You just do a lot of good work. Um, so thank you honestly and sincerely from me for, you know, the year's worth of effort that you've been putting putting into this. I hope it's paying you back, you and your family. Well, you know, it, it, it does. And I mean, if for no other reason than I have work that I really look forward to and that I legitimately feels like improves the world. Like I, if I died tomorrow, I, I, you know, as I, as I fade away, I would, you know, I love my family and I, I, I feel like I've done some work that, that improved the world, hopefully. So, uh, and, and I, I don't know that one can really aspire to much more than that. So it's, I'm very, very fortunate to do what I'm doing. And you sound very principled as well, right? Not just doing the work that either pays the paycheck or is popular. Um, but I sense, uh, um, yeah, a purpose and a principle that keeps you on your path, even when those principles are not popular um, and perhaps even challenging or, or threatening or causing you a spot of bother. I, I sense that you're able to commit to what you believe to be right. Is, is that a fair assessment? It is to a fault, probably. I'd probably be better off being able to keep my mouth shut more often. <laughs> but um, I, I, uh, that, that, it, you know, it's so funny. Um, my, my dad died in 2004. My mom died in 2014. And, uh, I just kind of inherited all of this stuff from them, you know, and it, it, uh, it's hard to go through it. You know, it, it, you're just sorting through the, 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 the remaining, the remnants of two people's lives, you know, and it's a couple of boxes and crates and, you know, a little bit of photographic documentation. And, and so it's been hard to, to sit down and sort through that. But when I started sorting through this last pile, I, I found this, um, document that basically, uh, was given to me from one of my sixth grade teachers, which was an achievement award in argumentation and di didactic, uh, uh, you know, uh, tomfoolery or something like that. He was a pretty, pretty solid guy. And from an early age, I, I just, uh, I, I mean, I, I always got kicked out of Sunday school within about an hour because I just constantly ask questions. And if something doesn't mean I'm right, I'm not remotely saying I'm right, but if I'm curious about something or something, the, the gears don't mesh in my head. I mean, I could virtually be facing a fire squad firing squad and I'm still going to ask those damn questions. So mm. yeah, it's a, it's, it's a personality quirk for sure. I'm sure somewhere in the 23 and me genome, it's kind of like, you know, uh, deviant questioning, <laughs> uh, a gene category. And I, I'm like, uh, uh, homozygous in that for sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if you've read um, Gretchen Rubin's book, Four Tendencies. Yes. Yep. Yeah. You're very much in the questioner camp. Yeah. It, it, Maybe a little bit rebellious as well. And, and rebel, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And and I, I appreciate that. I, I, I'm i of the same ilk, if I'm honest. Um, I'm a truth seeker. I'm curious to a fault. And I will 
struggle to follow orders if they don't make sense to me. Doesn't mean I don't yes. follow the rules. I follow the rules when they make sense, but I'm difficult to manage if you're asking me to do something just because. It's um, yeah. <laughs> I'm a pain in the ass to a lot of my former managers. I'm sure they will attest to that. But anyway, enough about me. <laughs> I, what I would, um, I'd love to know, first of all, I, I want to know two things before we kind of get into the meat of this. First, um, how have you been over the last 12 months or so? Obviously, it's a very unique backdrop that we find ourselves in, in 2020, 2021. And then let's level set our audience on your kind of quick bio. Who's Rob Wolf, just in case someone has been living on the rock for the last 10 or so years? Sure. Yeah. You know, um, man, it's, it, it's interesting. We, we moved from Reno, Nevada to, uh, a small town in, uh, the hill country of Texas called New Braunfels little uh, coming up on two years ago now. And, uh, that it, it's interesting. We landed here, but we had to get here kind of quick and we found a good house, but not a, not a great house. And so, we decided to move again. And just as we did what, what at that point was the second move in like nine months, um, COVID like hit us, like our, our, uh, move in date to the new house was April 3rd. So, I mean, wow. we were right in the thick of things. This was still early. We, we didn't know if, uh, you know, 30% of the global population was going to die. Was this an extinction level event and all this stuff? Unfortunately, you, you know, as, as bad as everything was it, 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 and continues to be, it wasn't that bad. But, you know, we, we uh, went through a move and then we're actually gearing up to do another move. We're going to move to Montana now Jeez. because my wife's family refuses to move to Texas and, and they all live closer to, to Montana. So we're about a month out from another move. Um, so that's been interesting. Like it, it's been very uh, unrooted because we've kind of known that we, you know, this isn't our our long term home, and so that's been uh, uh, challenging for sure. Uh, we started homeschooling the year before COVID. Uh, Eight year old and six year old daughters, and uh, the first three months of that was really pretty intense. Um, I wasn't sure if I was making the right decision and we, you know, we, we weren't sure if we were getting in over our head, but, uh, we're now more than a year down range. And my, my youngest daughter just, uh, she is in first grade and just finished a comprehensive math book that, that I guess technically, uh, uh would cover everything that's expected to be up through third grade. Wow. And so, she's crushing it. And her, her older sister is doing really well. Also. Um, so we're feeling more confident in that the, the big challenge with homeschooling isn't the schooling. It's the other eight hours that they would normally be away that, Hmm. you know, particularly as, as working from home parents, you know, it's kind of like, how do we not just ignore them and trying to find some, some balance with that. And then, you know, personally, we've been very, very, very fortunate. Um, even though there's been clearly a massive economic dislocation for a lot of folks, and I am in a, an arguably a very uh, um, discretionary income scene, you know, uh, uh, privileged people spending money on on learning more about their health. Uh, it hasn't really their 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 health overall. And as the story has emerged, that metabolic health is this key determinant in whether or not you suffer the COVID experience at all, whether that is a bad cold versus a, a life-threatening event seems to largely MD status and, and metabolic health. And, and so this uh, uh, community that we founded over a year ago, the Healthy Rebellion, we, it, it's been motoring along really, really well. And we're 
we're very grateful for that. And so we individually or as a family have not really been that affected. Like uh, Texas has been fairly lenient in things like lockdowns and, and generally people are not, I, I don't want to say crazy. I don't want to emotionalize this thing. Um, if you're outside, people are generally not wearing masks, um, you know, and, and stuff like that. Whereas I know in California, like there are, there are people that won't go into their backyard alone without a mask on mm. and, and, uh, stuff like that. So it, it's interesting. We, as a family unit have been not been massively impacted. We, uh, we, we are live in an area where you can go outside and we can interact with people. There's a lot of outdoor activities and a lot of nature. Um, it's still really different because of the, the kind of COVID, um, you know, cloud that hangs over us all. I would say that the most impact that we've had is knowing, uh, friends and acquaintances who have lost businesses. Um, we, we know of two suicides, uh, directly because of, uh, kind of financial and one wasn't even financial. It was just, uh, this person was at, at the most gregarious outgoing person you could ever imagine. And the fact that he could not do his job, which is sales. And he was a very high level so he wasn't, he, he, this, this person who was in his thirties had kids, has a wife, killed himself because he could not fathom going another year, um, working remotely. Like it, it just, it, it was so disruptive to him that, uh, so we've, we've, we've been impacted from stuff like that, seeing kind of the collateral damage from all of the, the, you know, the activities trying to uh, contain and corral COVID. So it's, it's been interesting and I'm very, very aware that our, our individual lives have been lightly touched by all of this relative to a lot of other folks, but the, um, doesn't. Hey Rob. Hey, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry. I've, I've got almost, I had almost all of that. We're having a spot of internet um issues but i think we're back on so apologies i grabbed cool. almost 99 percent of that with a couple of blips so apologies to the audience for any uh dropouts um i, I hear you i'm we are, are fortunate enough to not have had direct in um observation of the kind of things that you've seen suicides and people having to close their businesses down or or, or really suffering financially albeit it is clearly obvious around all of the uk uh, you know we are under one of the most authoritarian um, COVID responses globally. And um, mm -hmm. it is tough work for everyone. It's not just the financial piece. Um, it is the emotional burden of either being in fear and not quite sure how you're, how you're going to respond and engage with the real world versus the kind of other end of the spectrum where you're not fearful of the virus or the impact of it, relative to, um, you know, just the, the general health pressures that we're under as a country. And at this time of the year in winter, it's always going to be more. Um, but feeling like they're kind of stuck in a bit of a one flew from the cuckoo's nest kind of situation, right? You know, kind of mm -hmm. Stuck in this, like, what feels like insanity where they see something different from the majority and also whatever is being peddled by mainstream. It's, it is a challenge right now. And, um, Oh, thank you for, for sharing that. I, I do want to double click onto some of those pieces. Actually, let's let's do one of those now and then we'll go into more of your bio piece. 
how are you feeling around this um around this kind of the, the kind of forced ideologies that we're currently under um do you struggle when you hear whether it be about nutrition what is health um uh, you know the, the 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 risk profile of covid and and really zero conversation around host health and the individual's health when you look at this and you look at really the dialogue that we've been presented and those ideologies we've been asked to to accept you know the vaccine solves all problems all that kind of stuff how are you feeling psychologically right now are you struggling or are you able to kind of bat it off and go hey it's always been like this you know we are you know but we're 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 um going against the grain and that there is a tide and i've always been working against that tide and i just have to kind of take my time trying to get the truth out there in terms of whatever you're focused on whether it be around health whether it be around meat whether it be around exercise whether it be around overall well-being yeah man that's a really good question you know uh Early in the internet, I mean, I wasn't one of these like uh, programmers or or people on 4chan, you know, channels w- really re- early in, but a pretty early adopter uh, have had a podcast running for 11, almost 12 years. So early in this scene and, and something that was so cool to me was the democratization of the access to information and, and that cuts both ways. It can cut both ways. There's a lot of garbage out there, but I've always been of the opinion that more freedom is better than less freedom. And it always begs the question, you know, who is going to curate what is truth and non-truth, you know, particularly in the, in the health space, like uh, a really fascinating paper uh, just came up uh, the other day, the homo viscous model of lipoproteins and cardiovascular disease, basically making this case that, um, the changes that we see in cholesterol and lipoproteins are due to the fatty acid profile of our diet. And uh, it, it, it's trying to maintain a, a, uh, a particular membrane fluidity within all the cells of our body. And, and this thing explains so many things that just have never been explained with a, a lot of the other kind of models around uh, lipoproteins, cholesterol, cardiovascular disease, like it it is really on point. And this thing has largely come about because of the free exchange of ideas via the the internet and the really rapid kind of evolution that could happen there. So I'm, I'm really a big fan of that. And, you know, ideas like paleo and keto and autoimmune disease and, and the gut microbiota, these things exploded in scientific relevance largely because of the ability to exchange ideas and to debate. And, and again, there's been a lot of schlock along the way, but I do have faith in the, the basic premise of the scientific method that, uh, you know, if we raise enough questions and these things bear enough merit, then we will get in and do the rigorous work to kind of suss out, okay, this is legit and that was fantastical and you you know we can sort that out but this is a really cool opportunity to to kick the tires on these things and then you know uh, I, I wrote a book recently sacred cow and we have a film by the same title uh looking at regenerative agriculture and the ethical environmental and and um health considerations of a meat inclusive food system and we've been it, it's been cool that we could have discussions around that 
but now we can't. Um, huge swaths of these topics are now being curated by not just, you know, kind of like traditional old guard media, but the, the, the new media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Google. And so it's becoming really hard, bordering on impossible to have discussions around these topics. And then if you wander into them, like making a statement that regeneratively raised grazing animals could be a huge benefit for climate change will get you labeled as a climate change denier. Mm -hmm. And then you could find yourself deplatformed and, and banned outright or, or shadow banned. And so you could work for years to build a, a platform and, and reach and have these discussions. And then in the, you know, literally a few keystrokes, you, you disappear and your, your, the totality of your work in these spaces can, can be expunged. And so the, I, I'm honestly, um, despair is probably my, my main emotion right now. You know, like early in COVID, uh, it was really perplexing to me that the singular solution being offered was a vaccine. Um, if it was, if COVID was really as dangerous as it was suggested being, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, it's killed a lot of people. It's clearly had a lot of impact. There's all of this concern around long haul syndrome, which is, you know, these, these, uh, possibly lifelong debilitating ailments that are a consequence of, of, uh, you know, the COVID infection, the, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus infection, and then the, the disease state of, of COVID, um, these things are really concerning. They're so concerning that I cannot conceive of a risk profile that says that you do one and one solution only, which is a, a vaccine. Um, when the Manhattan Project was spun up to try to develop a, a, an atomic bomb before the Germans did, um, several teams were put together and different avenues of investigation were put out there and these entities were competing against each other because you could not accommodate failure. It was an existential threat, like literally a civilizational extinction level threat. And so they diversified that risk profile by putting different people into different investigative avenues. And there was never a moment of, of uh, saying, hey, let's get some of our best people in pharmacotherapeutics and look at what are off the, the shelf, um, you know, uh, branded and unbranded uh, drugs. Is there any potential that any of these could change the, the course of the disease process in a favorable way? There was nothing. Um, that's been done independently. And it's been fought at the World Health Organization level all the way down to like local public health authorities, tooth and nail. And that is it. like, again, it, if people are kind of like, well, I don't really get what you're saying. This would be like if you were planning for retirement and you went to somebody and they just said, hey, you need to only buy gold. And oh, by the way, I happen to sell gold mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and that's it. It's, I shouldn't put any in the stock market. I shouldn't, shouldn't do anything in like commodity. Nope. One thing and one thing only like that out of virtually anything. And I, I did some podcasts on this maybe in late March at, at the, at the latest, like, I mean, it was really early in this thing, late March of last year. And I was just like, this doesn't make sense. And it's stuff like that that has kind of made me crazy. And I've, I've done my best job to uh, 
to talk about this while not getting canceled. And that's, that's, that's been kind of a, a challenging deal. Um, but then the, with the, the recent real ratcheting down of the ability to discuss these things, um, you know, there was kind of a statement by the, the big tech giants that anything that is not orthodox, uh, uh, perspective on health is, is basically going to be banned. And what that does is it makes it literally impossible. It does two things. It makes it virtually impossible to actually advance science now because the next discovery is by, <laughs> by definition going to be different than what we assume to be true today. And so you either make that impossible or we're in this constant updating deal where it's like, well, that, you know, Two days ago, you would get banned for suggesting that, that say, like ivermectin may be beneficial in the, the COVID disease process. But now that we have a study that managed to pierce its way through this kind of weird, you know, Orwellian oversight process, now it is accepted. So you can talk about it. Like, is that really doing anybody any favors? And is that really the type of world that we want to create and steward? But that's the type of world that we have. And I, I, I know that I kind of rambled all over the place, but um, it's really distressing, depressing, because this original ability to um, accelerate discussion and, and really have uh, a remarkably rapid evolution of ideas is, is disappearing. And the irony is that it's disappearing in large part from the very entities that, that uh, facilitated this process early on in the internet, you know, uh, the, the Googles, the Twitters, the Facebooks, you know, there's, there's been some really fascinating exchange of ideas on these platforms, but now it's becoming a, a scenario in which there will be one narrative and one narrative only. Um, and you, you may have some fairly dire consequences for going against that process. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree, Rob. I, I feel a sense of despair and apathy for someone who's optimistic and um, go-getter and has high belief generally around, you know, owning your, you know, taking agency for your life and taking agency for the things that you find important, I am I am struggling more days than not recently, you know, as a confession. And it's, it's this incessant, unprecedented propaganda machine that is really is, is favored by globalism and technocracy. You know, these, as you say, these big tech companies and these big philanthropists and these big, you know, uh, globalist organizations and institutions are effectively being allowed to define their ideology as both truth and the future. And no one can deviate or ask questions or have some discourse around whether their ideology of what they believe to be right now and what we need for tomorrow and the next day is right. Um, it's weird. It's really worrying because the ideology of vaccines, for example, might be completely perfect, but we're in a very imperfect world right now where we have very little data to support these experimental vaccines that have hit the market. And instead of being honest with ourselves and saying, okay, we, we believe our ideology to be right. We've done the best we can within what is, has to be a constrained timeline. Um, we are taking some risks. We are going to need people to engage in what is increased phase four experimentation into the mass market. You need informed consent for that. We're doing our best we can. There are all these unknowns. We're going to try and work it out as we go. Um, we are going to be, you know, trying to take the wheels off down the motorway. Like that's what we're doing here. 
because we can't stop and fully engage slowly and precisely because we don't have time because of this is, you know, this is an urge, urgent threat. I, I would be a little bit more respectful of the dialogue that we receive, whether it be all the COVID stuff and all the health stuff, if that was the dialogue, if that was the discussion. But instead, it's like, this is fact. Don't challenge it. Don't question it. If you question it, you'll be removed. You'll be silenced. You'll be censored. You'll be banned. Uh, you'll be smeared. You'll be mocked. And it's a really state of a, a sad state of affairs. I've spoken to several, you know, really intelligent minds, whether it be Ivor Cummins, whether it be Malcolm Kendrick, uh, whether it be Dr. Claire Craig, about the COVID stuff. And they're all saying science is well and truly dead in 2020, even though that the 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 sense that I think Joe Public received, the layperson is, science is alive and kicking and we're doing unprecedented collaboration and we're advancing our understanding of things at such a pace you, we've never seen before because COVID is, is, is narrowing and focusing our effort in this collective of trying to find solutions. And I part agree with that, but, only, but it's only advancing the ideologies that seem to be favoured by these largest institutions and organizations. So I feel we're in a bit of a hysteria and we're in a tailspin right now with COVID. And I think we don't know up from down. And then then to the last point before the next question comes in is I believe that we've kind of, we're kind of slowly being conditioned to forget what human health is. You know, in replacement for more medicines, biologics, fake processed food, lab foods, mass surveillance, social contact, anxiety, you know, and just really the antithesis of human nourishment. We're just being directed towards this really confusing place when surely we're the only animal on the planet that doesn't know what to eat anymore. <laughs> what, what, what is going on? It shouldn't be that bloody complicated. So either key off on that, Rob, or, or, or maybe talk to me about whether there were any risks associated to doing your latest project, which was the sacred cow. Because I could imagine with everything we've just said, that's a high risk play. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. Um, we really expected to catch some some shade from the, uh, the 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 vegan scene, you know, the very militant plant based scene. But uh, Diana Rogers and I worked on that book for four years, book, and then the film for two and a half to three of that. And Diana gets all props and praise on this. Like I I, I helped on. Uh, kind of some of the story arc, and I, I definitely helped a lot on the uh, some of the the more technical pieces, like the non-equilibrium thermodynamics, like basically this this model of life that that suggests that the the role of life is to capture energy and then you know do biological things, and it actually plugs into the the the, the bigger arc and. and you know, kind of like uh, uh, universal <laughs> development and whatnot. So I, it, it was a, a cool thing, but we really thought that we would get a lot of blowback from the the vegan scene. But man, we were so careful in what we we said. We're pretty sure this is fact versus we're speculating here, but here's some things that support this. And, you know, like we're very, very careful on that. Um, and we've had no blowback from the vegans at all. And I think it's because we did such a good job on that, that they don't want any attention directed at it at all. Because mm -hmm. we, you know, we've spent 10 years kind of jousting with these people and playing the vegan whack-a-mole game where, you know, they will make a claim, 
uh, meat is bad for your health. You know, it's, it, it increases cancer rates and it's like, okay, let's unpack that. And we do a very thorough job and it, it, I wouldn't say it's easy to do that, but it's a very logical stepwise process. And the, the research is fairly transparent. So you can go through and show how like uh, the claim that, uh, eating red meat increases colon cancer by 20%. Well, that's all retrospective studies. Um, those things are garbage. And oh, by the way, when they report that it's a 20% increase, what they're really doing is taking a background risk that everybody has of 5% of, of uh, westernized people developing colon cancer at some point in their life. And then looking at their research, which suggests that uh, eating red meat every day all of your life might increase your risk to 6%, even though we think that's garbage, but let's just say it's not garbage, it, it, but it, it, you know, it increases it by 1% absolute risk, but that gets reported as a 20% relative risk increase. And you can move people through that and kind of, you, you know, unpack that and reasonable folks will be like, huh, that's interesting. I still don't know if I'm going to eat bacon every single day, but I'm I'm not going to be as afraid of it as, as what I once was. And then you can go through the kind of the ethical considerations and the environmental considerations. And it's a lot of work and it, it, it's hard to, um, to unpack all this stuff, but it, it's doable. And I think that we did a good enough job on it that those folks are, are really kind of leaving it alone. But people promoting the book and film have had – you know, Instagram posts about it removed, um, our, our SEO on this site that has massive, the, uh, uh, sacredcow.info. It has massive amounts of unique content. Uh, it gets spun up all the time. It should just be a darling for, for something like Google that wants, um, well-respected and well-respected by like backlinked material from highly respected, uh, websites and constant updates and unique stuff. We do all of that and it's a, a hell of a time to find anything on it. So the interesting thing is that we're getting a lot of shade thrown, thrown on us from the, the social media and the kind of technocrat side of this. And it, it appears to be largely due to this notion that, um, uh, Animal husbandry has been tied into climate change and, and, and also COVID. You know, somehow COVID became this, this climate change topic also, and all of this has been woven together. And so interestingly, we, um, we aren't getting attacked from the quarters that we would have expected. And then the, the soft attack that we're getting is just, you know, airbrushing us out of current events and out of history. And that again is, is, uh, fuck, I don't even know what to say, man. It's, it, it's really something like it, it is reminiscent of, um, Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot. And, you know, I mean, it, these, these, these stories have been played out a lot of different times and this is what happens. You start airbrushing on inconvenient truths out of the, the whole picture and, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I could go on and on about that, but that that has been something that has has happened. Um, and and in trying to talk about this stuff, like it, it, this is kind of interesting too. Like there's a a lot of legitimate kind of social justice topics that have 
come up in in the last year. And there are a lot of legitimate social justice topics that are tied into food systems and whatnot. But in our, our book, in the film, we primarily focused on kind of the the threat of the globalist takeover of our food system like that. In my opinion, that is where the rubber hits the road because it doesn't matter what color you are, what your ethnicity is or any of that. If we lose total control of our food sovereignty, um, it doesn't matter if you are a, a BIPOC female looking to do a regenerative farm you won't be allowed to, and you won't be allowed to because of some local governmental official who's like a redneck and and doesn't like people of not of his ilk. But it's going to be because of dictates rain down upon us from World Health Organization level, from a World Economic Forum level, mm-hmm. and so we really focused hard on that. But because we focused on that singular thing because we didn't dig into every single social justice topic. And we, we turned in a book that was 600 pages in length. It got whittled down to 300 pages in length. And I, I think that the editors did a really good job on that. But because we didn't talk about every single, you know, individual perspective on kind of the social justice considerations of this, we, we have had a little bit of, of heat leveled at us from some, some folks who are basically like, well, of course, you know, a white male, white female, you didn't touch on the things that, that should really be touched on. And it, it's like, hey, we'd love to touch on that. Why don't we do that in a second book and film? Why don't you help us with that? <laughs> you know, but it was um, – that's been really interesting because it, it, you would argue that uh, those thoughts around the jo- social justice – considerations would arguably be from kind of a more progressive leaning crowd. And generally these people I think are generally a bit more, um, mistrustful of like, you know, multinational corporations and stuff like that. And, and I really tried to make the case that, and I, I could be wrong. Like I could be wrong in saying that globalization is arguably the most dangerous thing here. But if you just say, well, you're a racist and you have white privilege and you don't care, I don't think any of that is true. And our whole <laughs> like our whole process just grinds to a halt and it, it's like a blood clot there. Then it's like, OK, there's there's I guess we're you, you know, and there aren't too many other people outside of. Uh, well, there, there are people advocating for this, but you start getting heat like that thrown at you and you're kind of like, oh, screw it. Like I'm, I'm just going to go back to selling, you know, abs and skinny jeans. Like what is the upside here? Like me trying to talk about uh, cock blocking a, a move to own the intellectual property of the global food system. And I, I and I'm called a racist for doing that. Mm. I, I think, like, I think you're, you're okay, on the money. I'm good. I think you're on the money, Rob. I think there is, you mentioned a couple of organizations there. Let's just call call out those that are driving a, a globalist technocratic kind of regime. I think the most dominant for me in terms of um, declaring an ideology that we all should uh, ascribe to, all global leaders, is probably the World Economic Forum. You know, significant work in both their website, in their, their maps, and obviously the Davos meetings. They seem to have a lot of fanboys across all the globe right now. I don't want to say they're wrong because they, they may be completely right. They may be so strategic and um, intelligent about all the inputs, outputs, and all the c- 
considerations that they're taking the most balanced and um, fair position uh, on how humanity scales to, you know, 10 billion plus people and how we do that in a way which is um, more equitable, uh, more sustainable. Uh, they may be right. They may be right. But the World Economic Forum, Forum who uh, technocratic philanthropists such as OPP, the Rockefeller Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, then you've got AHA, FDA, you've got the social media crowd, you've got search, Google. Um, you've then got sold out uh, mainstream media such as BBC and The Guardian. They're, they're all singing off the same hymn sheet, which makes you then, and I think this COVID thing is, is, is doing this for everyone right now, is when you feel slightly differently and you think, we've, not, we've never had a successful globalist regime Maybe, maybe it is the absence of it isn't to suggest it can't work. It's just we've got no record of globalist food production, of a you know globalist management of all people, and therefore there's some caution that you know we are definitely a local breed, just like any other any other animal, right? You work the land relevant to where you are, and you harvest off of that that patch of land you you live within. Obviously, that has been stretched and stretched as we've, you know, had multinationals and global organizations and food production systems have changed, lots of processing. I'm not suggesting I want to go back to the good old days of living in a cave, but that we have lurched forward so significantly and these ideologies seem so strong and I think on, on the face of it, they seem right to a lot of people. Do you ever look at this and go, well, if all those organizations I've just stated are in support of more technology, uh, more AI, um, less work for people, lab-grown meats, uh, sorry, lab-grown food, uh, processed food as a means in which to feed everyone on the, on the planet and to do, such, uh, do so in a more socially appropriate, social, social justice way. Do you look at that and go, maybe I'm just clinging on to our ancestry, and maybe I'm on the wrong side of history. Do you ever have those moments, Rob? It, it, absolutely. I, I start from that premise. I, I try to disprove my my position, you know, straight out of the gate. And, uh, and I don't get very far in that process. And I don't know if that's because I'm not that smart or I'm really not that good at this, this type of stuff. Although, it, again, this is part of the reason why I got kicked out of Sunday school all the time. I knew the the biblical texts better than the the people running the, the Sunday school and still still had a, a bunch of questions, you know, and and uh, all of this stuff is really reminiscent. I remember 2007, I want to say it was Ben Bernanke had this, this statement that, um, you know, we don't need to worry about the, the, uh, the, the world economic, um, networking, we have offloaded risk. There is no longer risk. And that was bullshit. And it was so wrong that it nearly caused a, a China syndrome meltdown of the, the global economic system. And I'm a fan of international trade. I'm a fan of, of you know, largely free trade or, or at least, you know, responsible, equitable uh, trade. Um, I'm a big fan of all that stuff, but when you get organizations that are larger and don't answer to governments any longer of any kind, I think that there's a real danger there. You you have a 
a centralization of power that doesn't happen at the governmental level, but actually happens at the corporate level. And so it looks different than like a Stalinist, you know, take over the world or a Nazi take over the world, because that's kind of like this, this, you know, what we would classically view of like this, um, social political movement, but it, it's happening instead at the, the business side. And so it seems more benign, but it may actually be worse because there's, there's fewer, how do you go to war against Google? You know, and you sound like a crazy person for even suggesting something like that. So I, I really do, um, try to blow holes in my, my ideas around this, but I have this sneaky suspicion that from a, a global food security standpoint, we should have far more decentralization of production, but then lean heavily on the amazing distribution channels that we have. I'm not actually in that camp that, that is like, well, you know, you're taking avocados from Chile or, or you know, Mexico or whatever and sending them to New York or the Netherlands. I'm not actually concerned about that. I, not the way that other people are, but I don't think it makes sense to um, raise all of our meat in one area and cause huge dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico because of the nitrogenous effluent that ends up in the water. Like, why isn't that nitrogenous effluent getting used for farmland? <laughs> you know, why is it not being recycled and repurposed? And it's because it's not decentralized. And a, a good example of this is actually Venezuela, which um, was a, a for Central American standards was a very wealthy, uh, a very mixed economy. It had a lot of local food production, and then they relied exclusively on oil exports for their kind of economic base. And everybody, virtually everybody, left farming. And then when the the irony that we have now is that it appears that we don't have too little oil and fossil fuels. Now people are realizing, oh shit, we may have far, far, far too many. <laughs> you know, we're, we're never going to run out of this stuff because we keep getting better at finding it. And so now Venezuela is in this situation where the, this once fairly wealthy country has destroyed its endogenous food production systems. It became wholly dependent on imports and now it effectively has no money, mm. it, 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 you know, and it's run so inefficiently, so poorly that they can't even, you know, at the, the suppressed uh, uh, costs of, of oil and natural gas and whatnot, um, they're, they're in this kind of death spiral. And this suggestion that everybody in the world should be dependent on the, the um, outputs of the row crop industrial food model that would mainly be led by the United States and Europe. Man, if I was in a developing country or I was somewhere else, I would be really nervous about that because if you – and not everywhere can produce everything that it needs. I get that. But to the degree that you can find some, some local comparative advantages and, and diversification in your, your food production, I think that that's really smart. I think it's smart from an ecological perspective. I think it's smart from a, a work for human beings perspective. I, I, I think it's smart from an economic perspective. And that sounds like Luddite crazy talk compared to what we're, we're being sold on the other side of this. And so yeah, I like my position just couldn't be any more different than the the kind of starry eyed story that is is coming out of 
World Economic Forum, World Health Organization, um, you know, tech tech pieces that are, you know, basically painting our food should be run the way that software is. And it, it should be intellectual property owned by a few people. And then we should just be happy to consume the output of that, that in theory, really awesome, stable system when uh, it, it's actually a very brittle, easily broken system. And it terrifies me. Like the, the ca- catastrophe that could come about from uh, disruptions in that system uh, would be amazing if you were really fired up about um, curtailing the global population. You could do that in remarkably quick order. And I'm not saying that there's like a conspiracy to do that, but if some hiccup happened, people have no, it, it, it takes years to spin up the infrastructure of a local food system. This is the problem that Venezuela is having right now. The few farmers that that remained productive there, they're trying to get these folks to train other people to actually effectively run farms, but it takes a ton of time. That's a really skill intensive, knowledge intensive process that people should be um, journeymen in over the course of decades to really understand it. You don't just drop in and, and you, you know, you stick some seeds in the ground and next year you've got a cornucopia of food to, to, to provide people. You, uh, I know Lierre Keefe has spoken about this as well, like this imperialization and um, I can't remember the term she used, but I know that Africa has become incredibly dependent on Western countries and as such, they're in exactly the same position where it's more expensive to produce the food locally Therefore, they import. And then when they import, they don't have jobs to both, one, nourish mm-hmm. themselves and two, just earn a living. And that dependency is shackling them from being able to, you know, find opportunities for themselves. It, And it sounds like you've done a lot of thinking on this. And I, I only kind of stumbled on this as you're speaking. But it seems to be a, a really clear connection, a link between everything around either so, social justice uh fair equity and um you know proportionate access to service seems to be linked to being highly dependent on the few as opposed yes. to enabling independence which in actual fact can give you more but the problem with independence is it can it um it diversifies power as opposed to consolidates power um and the the skeptic in me says you know we we are we're moving ever closer towards you know the consolidation of power led by perhaps egomaniacs perhaps perhaps psychopaths or perhaps just incredibly philanthropic caring people but nonetheless as you say you're putting all the chips oh yeah everything in one basket and that worries me because it it basically takes away the agency for the individual yes. the town the nation, the country. And um I'm I'm not sure that makes sense. Now I, I I understand that if we went full tilt the other way and we said, okay, let's scrap any kind of globalist enterprise. We're going to go local across the globe. I suspect there'll be many problems with that too. I, I, I yep. don't think it's a with seven and a half billion people, I don't think that's a sustainable uh, alternative reality. That being said, this this inching towards more and more centralized power for the globe you know you can't help but look at that and go just with a little bit of cynicism cynicism and say how much of this is caring and how much of this is power grabbing um i know that's a highly politically charged question 
Um, and I look at the food production system and I look at what the WEF is suggesting. And it's very, it's a very anti-meat dialogue. It's, it's very mm-hmm. much around man-made food, you know, lab-created food as the exciting, shiny future where, you know, we untether ourselves from the limits of our, our land and natural resources, and we we produce on demand what we need all over the world. It sounds great, other than the fact that I'm worried about human health as a consequence of that, not just the economic stuff and what we've just spoken about. Do you think there is? Do you think that's hyperbolic to look at uh, human health and say you rob us of animal-based nutrition and real uh, from the ground nutrition that that could cause? some systemic issues around you know kind of human health do you do you think about that or do you think we'll find a way to just keep on keeping on no i i completely agree and uh, again this is um i'm a huge optimist on uh technology and innovation although i think that folks There will be technological, so as an example, I I just read a a chemical engineering um, piece today talking about an alternative to the Haber-Bosch process, which the Haber-Bosch process was was developed, um, I I believe, during World War I, where they they developed a way of uh, creating nitrogen from taking atmosphere or or ammonia, taking nitrogen out of the atmosphere lots of heat, lots of energy, and, and producing ammonia, which can be used in both fertilizer and explosives. And this is, it, we would have never had the population growth that we've had. We would, probably would have had a significant famine had this process not been developed. But it's incredibly energy intensive, and it, it produces a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, like remarkable amounts. And interestingly, this synthetic Fertilizer is not good for topsoil and it's not good for waterways. Like a lot of it makes it to, it, itself into waterways and then this stuff gets out into oceans. You end up with these algal blooms and the algae consumes all the oxygen and then it kills everything else in the water. And so it's got some really significant knock-on problems, which will need to be addressed at some point. But these folks just developed a process that occurs at low temperature, low pressure, and uses a tiny fraction of the energy that was used previously. It is beautiful. It is amazing. And it solves one of the big problems that I've been talking about, which is, you know, if we're going to, you know, be concerned about, uh, say, like greenhouse gas emissions around agriculture and, and animal husbandry in particular, you can't ignore the Haber process and, and the production of, you know, synthetic chemical fertilizer and whatnot. This actually solves some of that potentially. And, you know, here's a really interesting thing about it. It can happen in a way that could like literally every small farm in the world could have its own mini Haber process where they make nitrogen fertilizer on demand from solar panels. And so there's not centralization. There's there's not you know, massive amounts of this stuff being produced in one area and then it needs to be shipped around the world. And then I, I think it was in Beirut that it was that um, that ammonium nitrate storage facility ended up exploding. You know, it shows how unstable this stuff can be. That doesn't happen all the time, but it, it, it can. But this is an innovation that could be really amazing. 
Now, it doesn't address topsoil. It doesn't address damage to the waterways, but that might be able to be managed. And so there might be a bit of a middle ground here that, that we could look at. But even in the, you know, these uh, kind of lab-grown meat kind of scenarios, um, you have to produce something to put into this lab-grown meat. And this is something that just fascinates me. You, people forget, and maybe it's because I worked in a microbiology lab, and when you grow something on a, a, a plated culture, there's a medium that goes in there, and that stuff comes from, you know, like like row crops and and whatnot. It's got to be highly processed, and there's a lot of energy involved with that. And so it's not a free lunch. And when you look at, say, like pastured meat grown on grass and the kind of ecological benefits of that, again, I wouldn't say it's a free lunch, but man, it's damn close. Like you're, it literally is solar fueled food, like almost exclusively, other than the the kind of distribution side of that. There's all this potential upside around using um, holistically managed animals to reverse desertification. And and uh, I think more to your, your original question, it is very hard to make a case that you can have adequate human nutrition without animal product inputs. And when there was a claim that was made recently that, you know, uh, animal husbandry accounts for this huge section of like greenhouse gas emissions out of out of food production. It was actually inaccurate, the amount claimed one. But the, the thing that was missed and this was um, expanded upon in some letters to the editor critiquing this piece, it made the case and, and I believe correctly so that if you remove animal products wholesale from the, the human diet. Um, you will get much more nutrient deficiencies, uh, particularly in the developing world, because there is not a, a pharmacy on every corner where you can go buy your your algae-derived DHA and you can get B vitamin supplements and iron supplements and whatnot. Like that isn't accessible to everybody. You would be destroying virtually every traditional food system on the planet because most of them rely at least to some degree on on – uh, you know, animal product inputs for for their perpetuation to say nothing of just the local economic infrastructure that's involved there. And this is kind of a side, but there are, are tens of millions of women around the world that are not, because of their sociopolitical situation, they're not allowed to own land, but they are allowed to own animals. And so it, it, a largely white vegan-centric cross-section of the world is now basically suggesting that the sole form of economic and nutritional support that tens of millions of women and their children have around the world should be done away with because of climate change. And then finally, this, this paper made the case that when you remove animal products from the diet, people eat more calories in total. And this will lead to overweight, obesity, diabetes, and all of the healthcare costs and carbon footprint inherent and dealing with that, like we did some very back of the envelope numbers, but when you look at the carbon footprint of dealing with like dialysis, the tubes, the machinery, the drugs, the syringes, it is jaw dropping. So this is again where, where folks present this stuff in this, this just fantastically simplified way and ignore the kind of bigger systems wide considerations here. And I, I really appreciate the point that you made a, a bit back here, which is um, I get criticized a lot for, for making these suggestions. People are like, 
you don't care about people. You just want to support the current power structure and, you know, all this stuff. And maybe they're right. Or maybe they are so entirely wrong that they can't even see how wrong they are. Because in my mind, what I'm suggesting is that everybody is free. Everybody has the agency to do their life the way that they want to do it. And they're not beholden to anyone, least of all, you know, the, the United States government or the European Union or, or um, you know, uh, uh, tech oligarchs that, that because of their investments, you, you could make the case that they're actually pharmaceutical companies, <laughs> you know, like the, the, the wedding of GlaxoSmithKline and, and Google. And so this is something that, you know, I really wish that folks that are on this, this uh, kind of starry-eyed sign of this, this thing would spend a little bit of time saying, well, maybe, maybe there is some potential here that, that decentralization would be good. And again, you made the, the great point. I'm not suggesting that we do away with international trade, that, you know, nothing like that. But I think more autonomy, not turning our food into intellectual property um, right now, there's, I believe it's six companies control about 95% of the food production globally. And I, I, I'm a big free market capitalist type of person, but I see a problem with that. I see a huge danger and moral hazard in that. I would like to see that more decentralized. And this again, kind of circles back to the the promise that we originally had with the the internet, there was this democratization of information and we're losing all of that from food to information to, do, to just being able to express oneself in a particular way. Like all of that is being taken away. And the problem is, Rob, you can't cent, um, centrally manage decentralization. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. an oxymoron, right? What, what are you going to do? You're either going to give people the tools to look after themselves and hope hope for the best or is hope not a good strategy for the world we must own control be confident of and if you want that future where we humans have greater control of the planet and us you're going to need to centralize and i think that is the dichotomy we're in that's the that's the buying of heads that i think we're constantly facing right what we need is independence but to get the things that we want uh, we actually need to do the opposite, greater dependence um, and greater dependence on systems that you say are, are, are quite fragile and open to both being manipulated, uh, destroyed, uh, having catastrophic issues with them, least of all, what impact it's going to have on generational health. Like what what, what mm -hmm. do humans look like in three, four, five generations from now? One with you know the advancement of wearables and transhumanism i mean that is a path you listen to yuval harari i mean he's got his finger on the pulse in terms of the direction we're inevitably taken and then where does food fit into that you know it worries me that we're, we're, we're moving so far away from the beaten track because we want this control because we believe control is better than kind of letting things be with you know some systems rules and guidance we need absolute control and um yeah <laughs> it scares me a little um you spoke about the removal of animal hus husbandry um, and you spoke about some of the consequences uh, around the world. Just from an ecological standpoint, if we said tomorrow, and this is really a two-part question, if we stopped animal husbandry tomorrow, would there be an ecological problem? 
And then the second question, I might have to re- remind you of it, is what about if we'd done the same for monocrop um, mm. farming? Mm. Would we see a collapse ecological, uh, from an ecological standpoint, or perhaps a collapse of humanity because we wouldn't be able to feed each other? Because these are two extremes that I think the vegan movement versus the you know the counter movement to that is saying, you know, abandon animal husbandry on one side and the other side is saying abandon monocrop farming. But I suspect there's consequences with, with both of those, ecologically and societally. Can you talk a little bit through your thinking of, firstly, the animal husbandry, if it was removed from the planet of the earth as of tomorrow? Yeah, so the in some again, these are estimates. And so, you know, they're always um, good for updating and whatnot. But the, the best agreed upon numbers around this story, if we removed animal, and I'll focus specifically on the United States, but if we removed all animal husbandry tomorrow, which I'm not even sure what that means, like do we call all of these animals and, and not eat them or we have one, one last round of well, a steak and yogurt? And, let's assume know, we that, didn't. That, we just stopped farming. We just said, oh, just leave them. Leave them be. Just leave, so, so, you know, that's, that's a whole interesting thing. Then what is the population control there? Do they just get old and die? Do uh, predatory animals, which are almost none of them around, do they control the population? Like, do we reintroduce more lions and tigers and bears to, to, mm-hmm. to, to deal with that? Like, there's a whole management kind of kind of piece to that that is missing. But the, the best numbers around that is that it would be a, a trivial impact in greenhouse gas emissions as a, a starting point. Place. Uh, and that's because the transportation sector dwarfs what, what comes out of, of animal husbandry, one. And then two, the greenhouse gas story within living systems really needs to be treated in a different way. It is part of a cycle. Not many people are advocating that we should go out and eradicate termites. But some people are because they produce huge amounts of methane. Not everybody's suggesting that we should eradicate shellfish from the ocean floor, but more and more people are because they produce huge amounts of methane. But this methane produced is part of a global carbon cycle that defines life, you know? And, and so it's a, it, it, and there's this potential within regenerative agriculture that it may be able to, to sequester a lot of carbon, particularly if we were to um, reverse desertification in all these areas around the world where it used to be grassland or marginal land. And, and uh, you know, uh, uh, if you remove those animals or you just let them kind of kind of run wild and they're, they're unmanaged, it will lead to increased desertification. You need some degree of management of animals um, on grasslands or they will overgraze it for the most part. So there has to be some management that occurs there. And again, it's either going to be human management or you have to introduce large amounts of predators, which then you're going to have the challenge of human and and large predator interaction Mm -hmm. becoming a problem. There's some places already, you know, parts of California and whatnot, where uh, interactions with mountain lions are are a a challenge. They're a concern. I'm not I, I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other about how you manage it, but it's a thing. It's something that people need to think about. There have been wolves reintroduced to certain areas of, of the Northern United States. There appears to be some benefit to ecological systems. And there's also challenges with the interaction of, of humans with these, these large, you know, uh, mainly carnivore, but uh, largely omnivorous uh, animals. So there's a lot of different 
challenges there. And then we immediately end up in this situation where um, people will suffer nutrient deficiencies unless we develop systems for making sure that everybody gets adequate zinc and B vitamins and iron and elongated EPA, DHA. Some people are good at com uh, converting the, the short chain omega-3, omega-6 fats into elongated forms. Not everybody is great at that, though. And so you will have a, a spectrum of nutrient deficiencies that come about from that. And also, it, it, it's pretty clear that people will tend to overeat in this scenario. Like the, the, the row crop um, products are beautifully matched for being plugged into the, the industrial uh, you know, junk food kind of scene. So I, I think that we've got that as this, this thing where I, I, it's hard to imagine how you just remove these animals from the system and what, you know, the claimed benefits versus, um, the reality, like there's claims that there will be all this reduction in death and morbidity and mortality and all of it's really dubious. It, it's, uh, but some people believe it with religious like conviction and no matter what, information you put before them, then, you know, you're, you're still facing that. Um, I think that on the row, like, could you remove row crops? Probably not. It is interesting though, that currently we, about 50% of the food that is produced on the planet goes to waste. So as it stands right now, our problem is not really a, a food production or a calorie production problem. It is a nutrition problem. People don't get adequate nutrition currently. And, and again, the uh, more and more people are consuming calories that are just devoid of any nutrition. And there's really massive health consequences that, that come about from that. Um, the diabetes epidemic within Westernized societies is monumental. Um, China, it's interesting, you know, uh, uh, they are centrally planned, but they have a strong market-based economic process and they recognize already they cannot allow their population of, of in increasingly wealthy people to adopt a, a uh, Western-style diet. And, and so they're really getting out ahead of this thing. They cannot absorb the economic impact of a, a aging, wealthier, sick population, like it, it will absolutely destroy them. And so, you know, the modeling that I've seen and some of the, the processes that I've seen, and a, a lot of this has happened in the UK, actually, where they looked at um, the amount of productivity relative to energy inputs of just leaving some hedgerows in between the, the traditional um, uh, row crop production scenarios. And so these hedgerows and the hedgerows themselves could be productive in some way, like they could be producing a product. But what these hedgerows do is they provide a habitat for predatory insects and birds and, and mm -hmm. critters like that, that help to minimize the, um, the, the, I wouldn't say parasitic, but the, the negative impact of, of different critters on these row crop systems. So it reduces the need for herbicides, insecticides, things like that. I think there's a really powerful case to be made for more rotation, um, for taking some of these plots of land offline for certain periods of time and introducing grazing animals to help re-nutrify the soil and reestablish the, the soil microbiome to um, reverse the loss of topsoil that occurs in these systems. And that topsoil loss piece is maybe one of the most 
profound pieces because it, it, there, there was a claim that was thrown around that um, we only have 60 harvests left. And this is another one of these pieces that would have played beautifully for Diana and I if it had been true. But we dug and dug and dug, and there's there's no scientific validation for this this claim. It was a woman who was was being uh, answering some questions at a uh, a WHO meeting, and she just kind of offhand said, "There's 60 harvests left." She had no scientific backing for it. There is no scientific backing for it. We don't know how many harvests we have left. It probably depends a lot on the local location, but we know for sure that we're losing topsoil at a shocking rate. And once the topsoil is gone, it's it. it you can regenerate it, but the way you regenerate it is with holistically managed animals, I, I, ironically. And so um, if we drive that train to its ultimate end conclusion, just with the exclusive use of the modern iteration of row crop industrial methods, it has an expiration date on it. And I, I don't think you can find anybody who can counter that point. And again, it's just based off of uh, the loss of topsoil. So I don't know that we can really 100% do away with, with row crops, but some sort of a hybridized system, which would be a little bit less efficient from a food production perspective, but efficiency kind of lose. One of the failures of economics is, is that it oftentimes doesn't look at longer term externalities. You know, it, it's can you get more productivity out of a patch of land here now? Yes, you can. But what are the costs? And if you're destroying the soil microbiome, if the soil is dying, if the soil is washing away and blowing away and eventually you will have no topsoil, that increased productivity is bullshit. Like you would have been better off doing something much less, quote, productive today so that you actually had topsoil going forward. And there, there are examples of, um, you know, grass-based pasture operations in the UK that you can trace ownership back a thousand, two thousand years on these these processes. And the the UK is interesting in that it's a it, it's not a brittle environment; it's a wet environment and whatnot. But you have systems there that have existed for thousands of years and have fed people for thousands of years. Whatever model we land on, it must be such that the thing could list could exist for thousands or tens of thousands of years. If humanity is going to go on, we have to have some type of a system that has an eye towards that. And I, I guess if I wanted to put on my starry-eyed techno-optimist hat, I could make the case that if we developed something like fusion power, which seems super unlikely to do because people are woefully ignorant of, of nuclear energy and just like eschew it as if it were itself a plague, but if you had a scenario where where energy was literally too cheap to meter, then we could end up with a system where if you didn't care how much energy something cost, then you could probably grow food in a vat and maybe you could make it nutrient dense enough to to feed, you know, everybody and not have nutrient deficiencies, you know, like the meat in a vat type type thing. But it, it would require a scenario in which um the energy cost would have to be um, really carbon neutral and arguably carbon negative. And there's probably ways to do that if you, you have basically you can harness the energy of multiple small suns around the planet to, to, to get this stuff done. But that's the only way you can do it.
And uh, this is, again, one of the ironies where whatever side of the political aisle you're on, in general, people are really prickly about nuclear energy. And they'll, they'll mention things like Three Mile Island and Fukushima and not understand that those are Generation 1 reactors. And we now have Gen 4, Gen 5 reactors. And they kind of scoff and dismiss that. But yet, if you point out to them, hey, do you remember your flip phone and what it could and couldn't do and what your iPhone or, or Android phone can do now? And there's been way more money dumped into researching and expanding that area of technology than it's been put into nuclear energy. But we now have these, these uh, small reactors that are low pressure and can literally cannot suffer the catastrophic failures that, that we, we've seen at at Chernobyl and Three Mile Island and Fukushima. Um, and I know I just like bounced all <laughs> over the place there, <laughs> but good. it's, uh, it, 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 this is another one of these frustrating things. And again, I'm not saying I'm right, but God damn it. Like not enough people know enough to even have an argument about this to, to just come back and say, well, Rob, I like what you're saying, but you know, the, the limitations of the generation four reactor are, are A, B, C, and D. People don't even know that there's a Gen 4 reactor, so they can't even have a debate around the topic. And, and I find it difficult to interact with folks that are talking about these, these existential crises topics, and they literally know nothing about these things. And again, doesn't mean I'm right, but I, I can have a conversation about the difference between a Gen 1 versus Gen 4 reactor and the potential of using thorium, which is, is again, a low-pressure uh, uh, energy production scenario. And it happens to be a, a currently a waste byproduct of the rare earth mining that goes into solar panel production. So right now, huge amounts of thorium, which is a radioactive uh, uh, substance, it hasn't been used in a nuclear reactor yet, but the Chinese have, have put 400 PhDs on, on this process trying to develop it. Because right now what people globally are doing with thorium is just sticking it in, in barrels and burying it underground in a Superfund site, you know, fashion. And it, it, it represents tens of thousands of years of energy that could, it, it by itself, that could fuel global energy needs. So there's all of these solutions just like hanging in the, the periphery, but it's a, again, it would neuter the centralized control that is occurring if we were to adopt these different processes again and again and again, the solutions are more local government governance, more local insight into what should happen and experimentation at the local level to find what's optimum there. And, and, uh, and the contrast with that is that we're, we're forcing this, this globalist agenda that, um, solar is the one solution that we've got. Doesn't matter if, if your country sits under cloud cover for you know, almost the, the, the totality of the year, if you're at a super high Northern latitude and, and the, uh, indirect angle of the sun is just crap for, for producing solar energy. Um, none of that gets dismissed or, or discussed. And I, what what I was just going to yeah. jump off on that, Rob, is we are well, clearly what you've just what you monologued for the last five ten minutes or so is is an expression of just how complicated this discussion is, and yes. I'm, I'm I'm okay with the fact it's complicated because I don't think you or I have the CPU to be able to process all the inputs, all the considerations, all the effects of every decision, 
Um, but clearly, you've just thrown enough out there to say, you know what, this is complicated. This is a mesh. You move one thing, and other things move. And and are we being perhaps so hell bent focused on technical progress, on growth, because that it really is the human condition, progress, technology. It's it's in us. It's instinct. Is our instinct is for invention. And I feel that. I think all of us feel that, right? You've invented stuff in your time, whether it be books or ideas or programs or, or, or supplements. And, you know, there's there's an excitement of creating something new that is needed. Um, but when we're so addicted to technological progress and growth, we, get, we, we can easily get very reductive and myopic in our focus of, you know, if I solve this one problem, the world's a good place. But what you're expressing is it's so enmeshed and um, unless we're careful about all, you know, the, the, the impact of decisions, we're going to go and lean, let the pendulum swing all in one direction, only to then show the devastation that causes downstream some other part of our ecology or uh, humanity. And I think we're seeing that already with processed foods. I think we're, you know, in mm-hmm. 2021, we're seeing that swing to processed foods is having an effect. Some people don't want to acknowledge it. Some people think, oh, that's just version one processed foods. We need version two. <laughs> the world will be better with version two processed foods in a lab, carefully formulated with nutrition in mind, not just taste and, you know, addiction, you know, factor and cheapness, but let's really dial in the nutrition aspect. Let's try and mimic nature and then we're good. Version two is going to be great until we get 10, 15, 20 years down the line and realize version two is a pile of shit too. But we had to take a run at it for a while and dedicate enormous amounts of resource and energy to it. And then some people, regrettably for those making money, call it out. And then that has a groundswell. And then all of a sudden we think, actually, maybe cholesterol isn't so bad for you. Maybe, you know, saturated fat isn't so bad for you, but it's taken so long. And I can see that you've you know, been fighting at this with many others for such a long time. And you're not winning, really. You're winning to some degree. I think there are increasing populations that get it, that, you know, the human nutrition is more nuanced. But I did want to just offer one anecdote on what you said around kind of farming. So I live in the UK. I live in a rural patch of, of the UK in Buckinghamshire. And the land I live on is actually farmland, not mine, but um, owned by someone who's owned it for many generations. And I don't know how smart this family is or isn't. I can just tell you what they do. So they they have barley fields, from what I can tell, wheat or barley. And we're right in the thick of it, right in the middle of it. And behind our house, we have um, grasslands that periodically have sheep on there. And then a little further afield, you can see periodic um, uh, grazing of of cattle, of, of cows. Now, the land that we live on, uh, it grows an annual crop, but not always. They will, they will um, rotate the crops. Sometimes they'll put turnips in, but not to eat, not for consumption. They put turnips in, they let the turnips grow, and then they go and basically borrow a bunch of sheep. And then the sheep basically ransack the place for a month mm-hmm. or two, right? And they eat all the turnips, they shit all over the place. Uh, it can stink, it's a bit weird. <laughs> but he he understands the need to do that. So he's got various plots and he's moving the animals around. He's moving these kind of animal feed crops around, specifically for them, the turnips or whatever whatever he, um, he plants. And then within those those iterations, he puts his money-making crop in and obviously harvests that in the summer. And it it's working. He clearly respects that 
and when he gets loads of horse dung or whatever, is it a horse manure, all that kind of stuff constantly, shit falls and, that and stinks the place out for a few days as they, we get a fresh load right near our house. Um, but he respects that, that there is this need to give the land a little bit of breathing space. There's mm-hmm. this need to manage it in a rotational fashion and there's a need for animal inputs, not just shipped in manure, but also animals engaging with the land. And right. I'm becoming more and more um, appreciative for what he's doing. I don't buy his products. I don't, I don't eat, you know, grain-based products at all, really. But I appreciate the care he's putting in to making sure he, ha- he has a sustainable business, and I think that's probably his priority. But the secondary benefit of what he's doing is that, you know, there's, there's, there's value for the ecology. Um, and he's been in business for generations. Don't know how how much money he's making, but enough clearly. Um, and I think that would be something we should maybe spend a bit more time on, as opposed to saying, okay, let's just do away with that. That sounds really inefficient. We're not making the most of the land. We're not making the most of every inch. You know, we're having to use all these extra inputs. There's periods of no use, but it's kind of clearly how we've always done it. But maybe the problem is, Rob, is that we have a, a future of a number of people on this planet that we can't carry. And if, there are, if, the, if that's the question is, how do we grow our, our population way beyond the carrying capacity of the earth, then we're going to need to get curious and inventive. But maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe the better question is, what's the carrying capacity of the earth? And how do we have a con- social contract amongst fellow humans that we don't, you know, just proliferate right? and we don't we we don't don't have too many of us and how do how do we how do we manage that going forward in a responsible way not have you know five six children each and i know per per capita we're having less children so like we are moving towards less you know reproduction per household yep. but it's not enough is it because we're still growing at a, and a, a, i think an alarming rate and do we need that growth of humanity? Now, and they're, again, they're more philosophical and it's going off the beaten yeah. track a little bit. But I think that's the better question, which is we're way above our heads in terms of how many humans are on this planet already. Instead of planning for more, how do we plan for controlling the environment with the people that we have and being responsible for not taking over? What are your thoughts? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's interesting, and this is a really hot button, controversial topic. And it, it's uh, it's interesting. The more centrally planned kind of mindset, folks say that we need some sort of a uh, control mechanism in here. And uh, uh, the Chinese are a pretty good example of this. You know, like the one child program. Um, uh, I guess in a way, kind of worked. Although there's there's cases to be made that it. it didn't. And now they're in this scenario in which they're going to have a very large aging population and not nearly enough younger people to support their tax base. And they're going to have huge problems. Um, and so it's, uh, again, there's, there's knock on consequences to everything. And mm-hmm. in general, what we find is that it, it, two, a, a couple of things, um, if you really protect property rights of individuals, some magic happens with regards to um, the number of children that are born because people don't have to be as stressed out about what 
what their life is going to look like as they age. They, they don't need those, those 8, 10, 12 kids to ensure that they might have some type of a, a, a livable older age. And then the other thing is that when women are allowed to be educated, and I, I say allowed, you know, when, when the culture reaches a point where women really are on equal footing with regards to education, magic happens. They cease having as many kids. And, and uh, you know, what happens usually in lockstep with that is that people become wealthier. They recognize, and, and some people would, would say, well, they just become uh, uh, selfish and they only care about themselves and they don't want to have more kids. And I, I don't know about that. Like having kids is a lot of work and it's a lot of effort. It's one of the greatest joys of my life, but it's not for everybody. But the the reality is that, it, you know, kids are kind of expensive to have. And as you start motoring along, you realize that eh, two kids is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Or maybe one kid is, is is good. Like that that third kid, just when you think about what type of car you need to deal with three kids versus two. Like it, it, there's all these like interesting things that make that step to the third kid like this really huge thing. And I could actually make a case that for a good long time, we Western societies would be smart to think about replacement level population because you don't want to create a population too quickly uh, because you end up with these population bulges where you've got a lot of old people who have an expectation of entitlements and retirement and medical coverage and whatnot. And you have little or no younger population that is in the pipeline being earners, developing a tax base. And maybe you can adjust some of this stuff with like immigration and whatnot, but that, that raises all these other kind of, you know, thorny topics. So I'm actually, uh, way more optimistic about like, we're, we're, it, some estimates put it that we're 30 years, 20 to 30 years away from living, lifting literally every human being out of abject poverty. And that should be our goal. Because one, it is the right thing to do to help as many people live as good a life as, as they want. And people can choose what, what exactly that, that looks like. But it, it will, by extension, solve enormous pieces of this population puzzle. And people will rightfully point out, they're like, well, it, industrialized societies consume more things. And that's true. But the United States and other industrialized societies are getting better and better at doing more with less. Like we, it doesn't, it, and this is kind of a ridiculous example, but just a, a, the aluminum that's involved in a, a soda can is like 30 or 40% of what it was in the 1970s. Like I, I, we're just figuring out how to do so much more with so much less. We get so much more out of the energy that we, that we have when whether it's lighting or heating or what have you. And there are some physicists that will paint this kind of doomsday, doomsday scenario. They're like, we, we can't sustain a, a perpetual uh, exponential growth. You know, we'll, we'll turn the planet into a star. It'll heat up and all true, but biological systems cannot follow exponential growth forever. And I guess I tend to lean more on the side of let's educate people. Let's develop, um, trade and work and and wealth in a way that really supports human dignity um that that is decentralized and and you know pays homage to the the value systems of people in in local areas 
but that incentivizes them to to live a good life. And by extension, they will generally have fewer children. And then we don't end up with this kind of eugenic, draconian, top-down you know, implementation system. And, and again, there are, there's pushback from these ideas. Some, you know, there's, there's things that need to be hashed out, but I, I, all too often I see people take this kind of Malthusian defeatist uh, perspective on this thing that we need some sort of like a really nasty reset and cut half of the population out or something, you know, to, to, to save the planet. And something that people really forget is that one of the the key features of innovation and development is, is our, our connectivity, our ability to communicate, but it's the number of people. You know, there, there are more gifted and talented students in China than there are students in the United States. There are more people in their gate program than we have students at all. What the hell are those people going to cook up as far as you know, solutions to our, our global and societal needs. If we're allowed to have these discussions and, and freedom is, is more the norm versus, you know, kind of totalitarian control. That was interesting. You know what? I was laughing to myself, Rob, because uh, <laughs> as soon as you said eugenics and I thought, oh, what have I just done? I've just loaded myself up for this idea that I, I'm a fan of that. And, and clearly I'm not. And clearly I am not a fan of doing, doing things to people without them knowing whether it's trying to, you know, medicate them to death or or create conditions where there's attrition that happens in this kind of stealthy way, but the people weren't aware of it because it's too hot topic to uh, talk about it directly and honestly. Um, and I, I guess, I guess what I would favour is that honest discussion. I think that there needs to be an honest discussion to say we we probably can't continue this exponential growth of humanity. Um, but we're not going to do anything to you. You should trust us as a as as a country, as as a national leadership, as global leadership. We're not going to do anything. We're not going to out of our way to control your population, whether it be through medication or food or for other means. Um, but I think we all need a social contract to agree on what is fair and reasonable, so we can have a sustainable existence. And there isn't too many of us for the resources that this planet offers. Uh, that's, I guess, where I was going. Not, not the idea mm-hmm. of that governments mm-hmm. should, should take unilateral control of the population problem and do it that with or without our consent. I think that that's wholly wrong. And uh, obviously, there's been failed attempts in, in the past, and we never want to repeat that. So I just want to make clear that is not, yeah, in, in yeah. any way, shape, or form, the ideology I ascribe to. Um, last question, then, Rob. So we we spoke. We, this has been great. It's it's been more philosophical and political uh, than I'd anticipated. But I think this is. This is the meat of it, really. This is the the stuff that, as you say, puts a shadow on your book because your book is dismissed for what seem to be high-level objectives and you're being perhaps too insular or, or too narrow. I don't think you are. The book is wide in its in its writing, um, but I can see how it, that could be used to kind of dismiss uh, the narrative that the book tries to offer. But what about specifically ethics? So... I'm, I am a proponent of eating animal-based nutrition. Uh, I favor that in my diet. It's, this, it's, it's a central part of uh, my diet and my family's diet. And I would like to say from, from everything that we understand of our health that we're thriving. Um, and we're doing the best we can to make the most responsible decisions around where, where those animal-based products uh, are, are purchased from. And we live in the UK, which offers currently 
um, more sustainable, perhaps greater welfare system for animals. So I, I feel relatively okay with the decisions I'm making. But the pushback I will get is, you're just following some near as some kind of like prehistoric animal simplistic instinct for that desire and uh, that that pleasure of the taste on your tongue that you should really be able to outgrow your instinct for meat uh, and this is something that's in the dark ages you know that's what our pre predecessors done that's what predators do we're more evolved we're more civilized we're more intelligent we have more technology there isn't a place now for you to continue to engage with your intuition and your instinct to want to have nutrient-dense animal-based food. And then there's this conversation, well, we're not going to return to animal um, hunting. That's not scalable. You know, people go out and actually, you know, do animal husbandry themselves in their back garden or go out and hunt. Like, that ain't going to work across the world. So, as you think about the ethics side of it, like the, the, the decision as the individual to eat a animal that has been reared specifically for our consumption, whether done appropriately or inappropriately, where do you settle on that? I've thrown a lot out at you, but I just really want to get your sense of, is it ethically right to still pursue this idea of regenerative farming and sustainable animal husbandry for the good of you know, human nutrition and therefore, I guess, human health. Like, do you think we should be trying to escape that that kind of a stranglehold that we're currently in where animal husband, husbandry, i.e. animal-based products, are still pretty central to our health? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. You couch this stuff really well. Uh, a third of the book and a third of the movie touches on the ethical considerations of a meat-inclusive food system, animal product-inclusive food system. And, it, you know, it's interesting. We were going to start with the ethical consideration, but as we worked our way through the material, we, we discovered some kind of interesting things. Like, it would, it would, it, it's, it's interesting to have this conversation starting from it's wrong to eat animals, period, full stop done. And, and, you know, it, 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 it's kind of a, man, that's kind of a, uh, that's a big lift to get beyond that, you know? Um, but what was interesting with that is as we worked our way through the material and we looked at just human nutrition, what we found is that, man, it is really, really hard to feed a human, particularly a growing, developing human children and fetuses, uh, a, a diet that is adequate for them, um, without animal inclusive products. You know, I mean, it is really hard and the, the rates of nutrient deficiencies, even death that occurs in, in infants and children exposed to vegan diets is, is remarkable or even vegetarian diets for that matter. So, you know, it starts changing the conversation a little bit where it's like, man, I don't know if you can feed humans, particularly at scale, <laughs> you know, uh, without the inclusion of, of animal products. And again, this starts expanding out to like the developing world and whatnot. Like, is everybody going to take a, a EPA DHA su supplement from harvested kelp so that their brains get enough, you know, long chain omega fats because not everybody can convert uh, linoleic acid into, into EPA DHA and, you know, and the iron and on and on. But we made a pretty strong case that it, it is not impossible, but it's hard 
to make that work for humans, particularly growing humans. And it, in the EU, it is, it, as far as my best understanding, it is uh, illegal to feed kids a vegan diet. Vegetarian is allowable and there's all kinds of variations off of what, what that actually means, but it's, it's considered a child endangerment to feed them a vegan diet. So that was kind of an interesting thing. Then when we started looking at the food production side of this, it's presented as if uh, because there's not an animal on your plate that there wasn't an animal killed in the process of putting the food on your plate. And so when we look at the industrial row crop system, monumental numbers of animals are killed in that process, you know, ranging from, you know, insects and invertebrates all, all the way up to, to larger mammals and birds and, and uh, you know, declining uh, bee populations and whatnot. And it gets interesting, like, is a cow and a mouse equivalent from an ethical standpoint? Well, a cow is bigger and arguably it's cuter, but they're both mammals. They have the, the same approximate genetic complexity and whatnot. Just because one's smaller and one's larger, it shouldn't really have a greater ethical consideration. And when you look at the amount of rodents killed in the industrial row crop food, food system, just fumigating uh, grain silos, it is staggering. And this is something that is greenwashed within the, the vegan scene. They will just say, well, we didn't intend to kill those. It's like, no, you're a liar. You, you did intend because if you don't do that, the, these animals will eat the bulk of it. You know, So there has to be this kind of mitigating process that occurs there. And that's one part of the food production system. The other part is that, again, it is not entirely clear that you can have a food system that exists indefinitely for thousands of years without animal product inputs. And you just alluded to this to some degree with the description of your local environment there. Like there's an inclusion of animals in that process to re-nutrify the soil and to prevent soil uh, loss. And, and that is a, that is a non-negotiable feature. If you lose all the topsoil, we will not feed a the global population won't really matter because there won't be much of it left, you know? And so that, that's a whole piece to it. So when you look at the fact that, or, or the consideration, I won't say the fact, but the consideration that it may be very difficult bordering on impossible to adequately feed humans in general, particularly growing humans, that changes the ethical consideration a lot. When you consider the two pieces of the production side, you know, the, the perpetuation of the soil and also the fact that huge numbers of animals are killed in, in what would otherwise be like the, the production of quote vegan foods, then it really changes the ethical consideration there. And it, it's interesting. You couch this in, in such a really nice way. Um, there's this, you know, there's this anthropomorphized hierarchy that, you know, like predators are bad that because they eat other animals and it's ironic, there were some uh, professors of philosophy that suggested that uh, uh, we should ethically go out and expunge the planet of all meat-eating animals because they're, again, it's kind of this social justice idea, this, this woke philosophy gone absolutely crazy in my mind, that we should eradicate all meat-eating animals or we should gen genetically modify them so that they are only plant-eating animals. And the divorce from 
basic ecological principles of this suggestion is just mind blowing. Like you basically have a petri dish with no control rod in it. You know, I mean, you're it, all the animals are gonna gonna consume is, it, all the available plant stuff, and then the population will crash, and that will probably be the end of life on on the planet. And so, these people are are talking about things in a, I, I think, somewhat a a uh, a genuine position of wanting to do good by the planet and do good by other organisms. But the, this notion that there is some sort of a, a spiritual hierarchy within different trophic levels, like the way that an organism feeds itself is so stunningly hubristic. And, and I, ironically, it's like racist or speciest in a way. Mm. It, it, it's kind of like, so a lion is lesser than a gazelle because it eats the gazelle. What about when the lion died? I mean, this is fucking Disney, like, like Lion King stuff. You know, the, the lion dies and other organisms eat it and its bones become the minerals that grow the grass. You know, it, it's, um, and this kind of, I, I think circles back around throughout history. There've been many attempts, mainly historically from religious arenas to suggest that we need to evolve beyond our, our, you know, human limitations. And I think that humanity has made huge strides in the way that we treat each other. People will argue against that, but, um, we used to just murder each other wholesale all, all the time. And, and there are, because of the, the rule of law and, and, and different things like that, like we don't really do those things the way that we, we once did. And I think that that's actually a good thing but uh there's this uh, within religious pushes or re religious ideology food has been one of these primary determinants of self from non-self and it, it's interesting early in the the rise of nazism in germany the the one of the main points of vilification of the jewish people what were their their uh uh animal husbandry practices and, and the, the, you know, the butchering and processing of animals. And it was portrayed as this sub human activity and, and, uh, vegetarianism was this very in vogue thing within the, the third Reich. And this is shit that people do not talk about and they get really prickly about. And I've had a, a, a couple of posts about this on social media removed because people kind of lose their minds, but it, if you take all of this in its totality, it changes the ethical discussion dramatically, or at least it should. And again, maybe I have limitations to this. Maybe I am wrong about certain elements of it, but it is certainly not a an elevator pitch simplistic story, which is what we're generally being told around all of these topics. And I, I think if there's kind of a common theme to all of this, it's that um, – these these um, social media friendly soundbite uh, solutions to the world's problems might not be, and that the the uh, religious level adoption of these ideas may in fact be completely counterproductive and doing exactly the opposite of what these seemingly well-meaning people are trying to do. It's in interesting. Everything you've just said there, you know, the cogs were turning to think that we can uh, condition or rehabilitate a lion from their um, carnivore-like ways is, is is ludicrous, right? That that's what they do. They are sole carnivores. I mean, you to, to to challenge their ancestry. I mean, what right do we have 
to say, oh, you know, you're a bad, you're a bad animal because you eat another animal. It's, it's just what they do. Look at dogs. Like, how many dogs do we have around the world now? We we force them grain products, but left it to their own devices. They don't eat grass. They don't eat any vegetation that I've seen. They only do that to make themselves sick. Like, they they need to to eat another animal. That's their existence. Does that make all our dogs bad? Does it make my little chihuahua and my whippet? bad animals because they don't have the the spiritual awareness and the social awareness of, of their behavior. It's it's the circle of life. And to think that if we if we allowed all our all our cat all our cattle, all our existing chickens, all our existing um pigs, etc., just to roam, I mean, for one, they would run out of food incredibly quickly. Then what happens? Then they're all gonna have to die, right? Because right. we we see how devastating uh, uh sheep can the, the, the devastation sheep can have on just a small plot of land. Like I see it with my very eyes. Like you give them a week or two and they have decimated the land because they just keep going. Right. And I'm not saying that it's bad. That's just what they do. They graze all day long. Now what happens when they graze for everything they've done? Where do they go next? When they're, you know, they're boxed in, whether it be through roads or um, buildings or walls or hedgerows, like where do they go next? These animals are going to die on mass if we stop looking after them. And you say, oh, actually, that's fair. It, it's, they were going to die anyway, so you may as well let them die naturally. But then you think through that 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 circle of life, and you think, okay, are the predators here? Well, no, not really, because we've done a good job of eliminating most of the predators. Um, and if we reintroduce them, what impacts, as you said, what impacts are that going to have to us? It's just it all gets really complicated. But the thing I find most fascinating is that we think generally as humans that we're above the circle of life. <laughs> because we have this level of consciousness and awareness and intelligence that we've exited ourselves from the circle of life. You know, our bodies don't get given back to the ground. Our excrement doesn't get given back to the ground. Um, and we believe that we shouldn't participate <laughs> in that circle of life at all. That's the only just and right thing to do. And we should give nothing back to the soil, whether it be our dead bodies or our excrement or any other part of our, our... I just find it just odd. Like, if we just step back and if we could observe animals in their natural habitat and say, what's right for them? What's their right diet, their right grazing strategy, where they should live, where they shouldn't live, how they should go about their life, the kind of population sizes for them to live well, we'd reach a conclusion without, without emotion. But when it comes to humans, emotion, consciousness... Uh, quote unquote, care, empathy, consideration. These things just completely miss, mess the the science and the rationality. And as a result, you and I have been noodling for almost two hours back and forth on on something that if we were talking about what's the right way for a lion to live or a dog to live or a dolphin to live, we'd reach a conclusion very, very quickly. But for us, it's infinitely complex. I'm struggling yeah. a little bit here in terms of how we wrap a bow around that statement, but like, yeah, and, and you know maybe one thing I think maybe to to that I, I find pretty profound. I remember Joel Salatin was was doing a, a public speaking gig, and there was a a family there that was vegan, and they were basically like, "Well, you know what? How do we fit into your world? You know, like you you produce all these animals." And Joel's like, "No, I produce food. I produce both plant and animal food." And he said, I tell you what, if you let me feed my family the way that I want to feed them, I promise you I will produce enough food for you to feed your family the way that you want to feed them. And it was 
powerful. And what I find today is that honor and that reciprocity is not extended both ways. There's an expectation that there is one way to do this. And it, it, it tends to be in this kind of vegan centric model with all these other kind of knock on, you know, uh, uh, perks, <laughs> I'll, I'll call them, that are attached to it. And I, I find it antithetical to the individual. Um, it, it creates this uh, only a group identity. And I, I think it's incredibly dangerous and, and also it's, it's a remarkably dehumanizing and, uh, you know, it's, it, but, but that was one of the most profound things that I've, I've seen. And again, I, I would just throw that out there as a, a compare and contrast, like on the one hand, we're being told that, uh, uh there was just a, another paper and I, I do have to wrap up here in a minute, but, um, there was a paper that was suggesting that humans should be given uh, uh, types of vaccines that would make them intolerant to meat and dairy. I'm getting ready to do a, a podcast on this because then they would be incapable of consuming these wow. foods. And there are folks that feel morally obliged. They're so, they feel so strongly in their moral position that they feel like this just needs to be foist upon humanity. And I have some very strong convictions, but I would never foist a, a global agenda on much of anybody about much of anything, let alone like what, what, what you know, modifying their, their physiology and their immunology such that they become intolerant to certain foods so that I can socially engineer their, their dining habits, you know, but it, there are people that, that subscribe to this, this view and they want to engineer everything from how we can or can't work, how we can or can't communicate, you know, whether or not you are are evil or not because you have a, a particular kind of political leaning. And um, I, I, I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm profoundly disturbed that there are folks that believe so deeply in their ideology that they, there's not even a moment's thought that like, man, could that be wrong? Like, do I, do I really need to be that committed to this, this idea? <sighs> yeah, I, I agree, Rob. I think that is worrying. I think we, we, we probably, as we look forward, Maybe we should pay a little bit more respect to our instincts, our intuition, our taste, our like evolved taste for food and our ancestral patterns. I think there's more to history than we give it credit to. Instead, we want to create uh, evolving futures that completely ignore the way we've done before. And I think to to ignore the past for a creation of a new, you know, utopia-like future, I think that's just going to spell problems. And I thank you for your... Um, generosity today and your intellect and your thoughtfulness rob it's been truly fascinating sorry for holding you a little longer than expected um, I, I i love this this was one of the most enjoyable podcasts i i've ever done so i really oh. appreciate it you you ask amazing questions and you uh clearly you have your own perspective on this but you you ask some very um thorny and difficult to to get at questions so you you do an amazing job with this i'm really honored to have been on the show you're you're a star thank you for the, those kind comments where can people find more of you if uh, as i say they've been living under a rock and uh, haven't heard of rob wolf before give us your website um social handles etc robwolf.com is where you can track most everything that i'm doing down i'm I, I have social media accounts but i don't really do anything on them anymore other than then you know i have an assistant that does some posts but uh the the whole scene's become toxic enough that i 
I don't really go there. And then we have a, a podcast called The Healthy Rebellion, where my wife and I answer uh, Q&A. And I occasionally do a, a deep dive on different topics called Salty Talks. And so the uh, the healthy, join.thehealthyrebellion.com is another spot to track me down. Awesome. I'll make sure I'll link to all of those. And I'll, I'll link to the businesses and the books that you have as well, if people are curious as to where you're investing your time. Um, and thank you for the LMNT stuff. Um, had a, had a go at some of those those are kind of uh, extra salts you can put in your water and actually really yummy. So um, they're part awesome. of my ritual now. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Very cool. Well, it's like peddling cocaine. The first one is free. So <laughs> then you'll, you'll be selling your body on the streets to pay uh, for it now. No, no, so. I appreciate that. Anyway, enjoy it the rest of the week. Um, keep up the good fight. Um, I hope all, all, all the best for the book and the other things that you're doing. Uh, and this will get out pretty shortly. Thank you for your time, Rob. Awesome, Steve. Take care. Bye-bye. You're, you're a star. Whoa, just before you go, I want to know two things from you, if you would be so kind. Firstly, how did you find that episode? Was it insightful? Was it practical? Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, do us a huge favor, please, and write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best journey yet? If you haven't, That's cool, but go to adaptnation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, there's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.